Well, good morning. Does anyone know the how, how Brother Chaco's doing? Brother. Glad to hear that. I assume he's still in the hospital. Okay, well, the lesson this morning, Jesus calls his followers, his first disciples, leave everything to follow the Messiah. And for most of you, I suspect you have a couple misconceptions about the events around Christ calling his disciples, because I know I did. And uh, the, the people who wrote the outline for this lesson, brought up some interesting points which I had not considered. So our memory verse, same as it was last week, let's try to say it together. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the weak. Meek, excuse me. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. So last week, we looked at a key event in Jesus' ministry, his temptation by Satan. And he responded to this temptation, not as a divine individual, but as a man, resisting temptation using God's word and God's scriptures and setting an example for us on how to withstand sin through an understanding of God's word, his will, and his promises. Now this week, we're going to look at the call of his first disciples. And per usual, we'll be using readings by Alexander Scorby uh, in, uh, of the Bible. Speaking of which, brother? The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. <clears throat> so first of all, disciple. It's a word we use a lot. Maybe we understand the meaning, maybe we sort of don't. But let's start at the beginning. A student, a pupil, a follower of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. More specifically, one who tries to order his life around their teachings. This is not a casual follower. This is a submitted follower, voluntarily submitting their will to the teachings of their leader, or their teacher, or a philosopher. You're, you're, it's a commitment, it's a submission of will. John was persistent in pointing to Jesus. He knew that his ministry was to decrease, that he was just the opening act. He was there to warm up the audience. The audience was Israel. And he encouraged people who were his disciples to abandon him and follow Christ instead. This account starts... 
you know what, that's, that's completely wrong. Ignore that. But two days in a row, this account tells us that when John saw Christ, he pointed his disciples. He pointed everyone around him, there is the Lamb of God. This is the guy I've been telling you about who has come according to God's promises. There he is, right there. Take advantage of it. And John, in this passage, declared twice that Jesus is the Messiah. And these two disciples of John became disciples of Jesus. So let's take a look at what happens when they followed Jesus. Brother? Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So you, you, you want to get this scene. Jesus is walking along by the riverside, because John was baptizing in the river. So he's walking along by the riverside. John points out Jesus to his two disciples. Son of God, right there, Messiah. These two disciples of John turn and follow Jesus. And when we say follow Jesus, they literally were following Jesus as Jesus was walking along. And as Jesus is walking along, he notices there's two people behind him. He turns and he asks, what do you want? What can I do for you? Now, they don't come and introduce themselves to Jesus. He has to speak to them first. And this is consistent with an oriental respect. You're going to respect your master or teacher. And incidentally, those words mean exactly the same thing. In English, one of a master has very different loadings on it. But master and teacher, same concept to the, the oriental or near-oriental mind. They began, you know, perhaps unsure what would happen next. Jesus asked them what they're looking for. Their response <clears throat> of where do you live, to put it in more modern English, is implicitly, indirectly asking for permission to follow him. They're doing it kind of indirectly. Again, this is, it's a humility thing. You want to you wanna respect your master your hopeful teacher, they're hoping, they're hoping they'll be adopted by this teacher. Where do you live? Can we come see where you, you live? Can we associate ourselves with you? His answer, I think, is very interesting. His answer is come and see. He doesn't tell them where he lives. He doesn't tell them what conditions he lives under. It's a test of their commitment. Are you willing to follow me without knowing where I'm going? And there's a beautiful echo of God's call of Abraham here, where he, God said to Abraham, get up and go. I'll let you know when you get there. Yes. So Jesus is telling these two young men who wish to be his disciples, see if you're committed, come and see. Now, at this time, Jesus would still be in Nazareth. Because he did not move to Capernaum until John was imprisoned. And at this day, John is very clearly not imprisoned. He's there at the side of the seashore. So they're going to Nazareth. And now, if they didn't know he was from Nazareth, they're walking further and further down into the armpit of Israel, which is what everybody thought of Nazareth. Okay? This was not primo real estate. Okay? This was the worst podunk 
doesn't even have a Bucky's kind of small community in the middle of nowhere, couldn't resist, uh, or even a Dairy Queen. You know, if you don't have a Dairy Queen, you're not even a town. When they arrive, it's about 4 p.m., 10th hour of the day, so they stay overnight. Okay, let's move on. In, in verse 40, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. <clears throat> so one of the two was Andrew, who immediately seeks out his brother to tell him that he's found the Messiah and brings his brother back to Jesus. Now, when Jesus spots Simon, he identifies him as Simon, the son of Jonah. Now, that's not necessarily particularly miraculous because Andrew had spent the night before with him. He could have described his brother. And Andrew's coming back with someone who probably physically resembles him. So the fact that Jesus identifies him as Simon, the son of Jonah, to me is not particularly miraculous. But then he says, you know, we're, we're just going to nickname you Rocky. A little stone. It's a strange way of greeting someone. <clears throat> and he gives him this nickname Cephas, which is stone in Aramaic. The Greek equivalent is Peter. So that's, that's all we hear biblically about the introduction of Simon, known then, then pretty much then from then on as Peter, and Christ. But this other guy, this other guy who followed Jesus with Andrew, he remains unnamed. Did he fall away? Did he become just another disciple of no particular note? Actually, we don't think so. Um, it's pretty characteristic uh, in John's gospel that when a disciple does something and is never given a name, it's because John is too humble to name himself in his own book. Most scholars believe this other unnamed disciple is in fact John, brother of James, son of Zebedee. And this is just another time that he appears and is never named. We know he was an early disciple of Christ, and it's consistent and reasonable to assume that this other man is John. But the Bible doesn't reveal anything else about this man just now. So let's continue on in the passage with verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So there's a particular word used in verse 47, guile, G-U-I-L-E. What's it mean? It's, a, it's an old Shakespearean word. It still exists in English today, not as commonly used. Again? Deceit is an excellent definition. Yes, sneakiness. Um, not being what you appear to be on the surface. Deceit, deviousness, excellent. Yes, exactly. So Jesus sees Nathaniel, and he gives him a great compliment. He walks to Galilee. Let's just walk back a little bit at the beginning of the beginning of the passage. Jesus walks up into Galilee, and he finds a man that he's been seeking. Well, he knows where he is. He probably walked straight up to him. Philip, follow me. And Philip turns and follows Christ and becomes a dedicated disciple, submitting his will to Christ. Now, Philip then immediately finds his brother Nathaniel and invites him to come and see Messiah. And Nathaniel has his doubts. He shares the common opinion of Nazareth as the armpit of Palestine, but he goes to see anyway, but I have a strong impression that he went doubtful. And the reason I believe he was doubting is you can see it in Christ's greeting to him. When Christ greeted Peter, he gave him a nickname. I don't think Peter had any trouble believing this was the Messiah. Or I think Christ would have met that need. Maybe Peter had a need to be accepted, so he gave him a nickname, welcoming him into the group. But Nathaniel is doubting. So when Christ sees him, he greets him with a description of his character. I don't see any sarcasm there. Apparently, Nathan tried to live according to the law. He was living to the high standards of what God called all Israelites to live to. And he wasn't putting on a false face about it. He wasn't being devious about it. He was honestly following God's law. And you know what? There are people who do their very best, both saved and unsaved, to live an ethical life. Does that mean they're free from sin? No, because we all sin. But there are definitely people who aim for a higher standard than others. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite indeed. It's one who really lives up to the standards of God, in which there is no guile, no deviousness, no sneakiness. And when Nathaniel asks Jesus how he knows him, Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, this is immediate proof of Jesus' omniscience, a characteristic of God. So Jesus addresses Nathanael's need for proof in one sentence. And for Nathanael, it's enough. He proclaims him as Messiah and moves forward and becomes one of the apostles. Incidentally, he's also known on some lists as Bartholomew. He has two names, Nathaniel and Bartholomew. Um, remember, Bar means son of. So it may have been more of a nickname. I don't know what Tholomew, do you know what Tholomew is, brother? I don't either. I probably should have researched that, but I didn't. Um, Nathaniel or Bartholomew listed uh, certainly as one of the 12. Now, um, 
he was clearly expecting the Messiah. He has no problem accepting that this is Christ. There's no disbelief. There's no further questioning. Jesus acknowledges this simple belief, quite likely for the benefit of those around him, many of whom were not nearly as willing to believe that Jesus was the Christ on such a small thing. Now, Nathaniel calls him the Son of God. But Christ, in responding, calls himself Son of Man. This is a term of humility. Even with his first disciples, we can see the humility of Christ. The average Oriental teacher knows he's better than everyone else. And he acts like he's better than everyone else. He is the master. He is the teacher. He is the rabbi. And certainly in Jewish society, the rabbi is very elevated. But Christ, humbly called the Son of God, refers to himself as the Son of Man. A title that he almost always exclusively applies to himself. Now, at this point, there are five disciples. They're not yet apostles. They are followers of Christ, but has he sent them out? This is a simple yes or no question. No. So they're not yet apostles. They're not sent forth with special credentials. They're still pupils, they're still learners, they're still disciples. We've got Peter, Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and John, all called at a one-week period. And then they would see, as Jesus said, many greater proofs of Jesus' divinity as they continued to follow. So, now let's look at a somewhat parallel passage in Matthew, starting in uh, chapter... Now, when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison... He departed into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So time has passed since that week talked about in John 1, when the first five disciples were initially introduced to Jesus. Now, John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and Christ is now relocated from Nazareth, that little tiny town, to Capernaum, up on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's in red in that map. From a sleepy little town without a Dairy Queen into a a thriving trading fishing village, which is on the Via Marina, the the main north-south road that runs along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's a trading village. It's a fishing village. It's certainly not a metropolis, but 1,500 people, which is the estimate, is a whole lot more than probably the 40 or 50 that were in Nazareth. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Jesus to center his ministry in a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere. If he's going to have a base of operations, it needs to be someplace where more people can see him. Because, after all, he's there to preach to people. Now, why he didn't pick Jerusalem? God knows. I don't know for sure. I suspect that, well, he spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He made frequent trips to Jerusalem. If you center in Jerusalem, you have less reason to go out into the small towns. If you start in a small town to the north, 
several times a year, you've got to go down to Jerusalem anyway. It may make a little bit more sense from a uh, logistic sense. So continuing in Matthew. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Now, Simon and Andrew had been with Jesus some weeks earlier, and they had followed him. Now, notice they weren't called by Jesus. In the first passage, how many disciples were called by Jesus? There were five. How many of those disciples were called by Jesus? One. He said to Philip, follow me. The Bible does not recall a call of any of the other four. But these two, one of which had been a disciple of John the Baptist, and one of which was the brother of a disciple of John the Baptist, had of their own volition somewhat followed Christ. But they weren't really close, 100% dedicated disciples. They heard him, they were familiar with his message, but they're fishermen. So they're earning a living fishing. So when Christ comes to them and calls them and says, follow me, he's not cold calling them. He didn't pick people off the street at random. These were people who already knew him. These were people who had already voluntarily, to some extent, submitted and were, to some extent, disciples. He's now calling them to full discipleship. It is exactly the same as someone who's been sitting in the pew for five years, 10 years, 20 years, who hears an altar call and comes and dedicates their life more greatly to Jesus. As, oh, um, as the same way that Brother Tim heard a call to go to Panama. Now, he was already working as a preacher, but maybe a little bit more dedicated to walk away from everything and go down to Panama, that is the response of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. Already followers, now moving up to a whole new level of dedication. Now, what does this do to the account and my idea of the account? Well, there's certainly something very impressive about Jesus walking up to two total strangers saying, follow me, and they dump their nets and they dump their fish and they walk away from their boat and they follow Jesus. But there's something more human, something more understandable about people who already knew Jesus, who already knew Jesus' word, and are now being called to greater dedication. That's something I can relate to. I think it makes the story much more meaningful to us. Because most of us sitting here did not hear the gospel and immediately became full-time ministers the day we accepted Christ, right? Not a full-time minister. Um, probably never will be a full-time minister. Unless the Lord has something in mind that I'm unaware of. <laughs> and then hopefully I will have the integrity to say yes. But I think we can better understand these guys if we don't look at them as cold call responding. They're just responding to an altar call. But they leave their nets to become disciples. Now, there are three called disciples. Let's continue looking on in Matthew, starting in verse 21. 
And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Similarly, John, the unnamed disciple of John the Baptist who'd followed Jesus to Nazareth with Andrew, He's a follower, but he's still working as a fisherman along with his family. Now, John had no doubt told James, his brother, about Jesus the Christ. And James may have come and heard Christ preach. We don't know. The Bible is silent. Additionally, Simon and Andrew were literally from the same town. They were fishermen. Chances are they knew each other. Chances are they may have told James as well. But now, similar to Simon and Andrew, Jesus now continuing down the shore sees... John and James, a semi-dedicated follower of Jesus, and maybe a, we don't know really what James's state was. And again, same altar call. Come follow me closely and be my dedicated disciple. Leave your day job and become a full-time minister, initially a teacher. And they both respond. And again, these were not strangers that Jesus cold-called, but men that already had been following more distantly. Remember, these five, or these four, had traveled with Christ to Cana for the wedding, which we'll talk about next week. And then to Jerusalem for the feast, which we'll talk about next week. Because the events of the, of the lesson are a little bit, you know, if we're focusing on the call, well, one call occurred here, one call occurred here, and another call occurred up here. But this was a call to dedication, to full commitment and discipleship. And that was the great misconception I had always in reading this passage. It wasn't a cold call. So continuing on in Matthew, uh, five chapters later... And as later, Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So in this later passage, sometime later, five chapters later in Matthew, Jesus <coughs> calls another disciple, the author of the very gospel, which is written by Matthew, same guy. He's called from his collections table, and he is a tax collector. He is a man who collects taxes for the Romans because the Jews were not allowed to collect taxes for themselves. The only way the Jews collected money was money to support the temple. And that was another issue we'll talk about next week. But the Romans had a very simple principle in governing the people they conquered. You will pay taxes and you won't cause trouble. Because if, if you don't pay your taxes or you do cause trouble, we'll send a legion in and kick you around for a while until you pay your taxes and don't cause trouble. Did the Jews like this about the Romans? No, they hated it. And the tax collectors were the worst. Because when they worked for the Romans, what they typically did was a little exercise called tax farming. They had to collect a certain amount of money every week, every month. 
Everything they collected more than that, they got to keep. So most of them were cheats. If I'm going to get looked out down upon by the rest of society, because if you hate the Romans, well, you're obviously you're going to hate someone who collects money for the Romans. If everyone's going to hate me, I'll at least make a profit doing it. And so they had the worst reputation. And these were not people, for the most part, that you'd expect to find following Christ. But when Christ comes and says to Matthew, the tax collector, come follow me. Based on what we've seen in the stories of the four fishermen, do you suppose it was a cold call? Do you suppose Matthew had never heard of Jesus, had no idea what his message was, and a random man who was humble in appearances came up to him and said, follow me. And Matthew gets up from his collections table, the source of all his income, the center of his life, leaves the money and follows Jesus. Was that a cold call? It doesn't seem reasonable. But it's five chapters later in Matthew, time has passed. Jesus has been preaching all this time. I guarantee you Matthew knew the message. I also guarantee you that Matthew was not welcome in any gathering where Jesus was teaching. Because he was despised by everyone around him. So Matthew may have wanted to be a disciple of Christ. But he couldn't be. Because he was a tax collector. And so many of us come to Christ thinking we're not good enough. But he's sitting at the table and he may or may not have noticed Christ before Christ literally comes up to his table and said, I want you to be my disciple. Follow me. And I guarantee you that Matthew leapt up with joy at the opportunity he'd just been given. Because we can see he he turns his whole life around. And that night, because... He's a little different from the other disciples. He actually has some money. He holds a feast at his house for Jesus and the disciples. And during the meal, many other publican friends of Matthew and other assorted sinners join them. Because if you're an outcast in society, what you do is you form your own society with the other outcasts. Right? In the days before being a geek or a nerd became cool... The geeks or nerds, they gathered together. I know, a lot of my friends were geeks and nerds. Fellow outcasts who don't quite fit into society. And if we consider society out there, well, we are outcasts from that society, and here we are banded together. It's what people who are outcasts do. So any other publicans would have known Matthew and would have been friends for values of friends with Matthew, at least acquaintances. And if Matthew is going to hold a feast and have Jesus, the Messiah, and his followers, he's going to invite all of his friends. All the other outcasts are either going to be invited directly or they're going to hear about it and they show up. And so now we have the unworthy and the unaccepted coming to see Jesus in private because they never would have been accepted at a public gathering. They would have been spat upon or possibly have rocks tossed in their direction. Pushed, shoved, 
Now, the, the Pharisees are the other followers of Jesus in the sense that they were always following him around, but they weren't listening to what Jesus had to say. No, they're not following him to hear his teaching. They're following, hoping to catch him in a mistake and to attack him and to cut him down. But I guarantee you, every place Jesus was by this point in his ministry, there was a Pharisee or someone who was a syncopant, uh, you know, an ally of the Pharisees, listening, waiting to catch him up. And when they see him eating with unacceptables, with sinners, with the unworthy, which they would never do because they were very conscious of their standing in society and one did not associate with people like that. They might have tattoos. They don't confront him directly. They question his disciples. Your master is eating with those Doesn't he know who those people are? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus, hearing this, overhearing this, he puts them down hard. He says, I'm here for those who recognize they have a need. The physician is not there for the well people. He's there for the sick people. And he suggests that they learn their scriptures. Now, the reference he makes is to Hosea 6.6. Where God said through his prophet, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And if ever there was a verse to beat the Pharisees over the head with, here it is. Because their entire focus was on the sacrifice, on the burnt offerings, on the minutia of a religion that they had built around the Ten Commandments and to them was much more important than the Ten Commandments. They were not following God's path. They were following their own path of sanctity and how good I look. And is my tie straight? And of course, I have to be wearing a tie because I'm teaching. And I'm a terrible person because I don't have a jacket on and I'm teaching. It's all about the appearance, not about the content. Pharisees were all about the rules, not much about the teachings and attitudes behind the rule. And Christ challenges them to understand the true meaning behind the verse. And it's a great point, but the focus of this lesson is on the call of Matthew. So common themes. You know, most of the people that Jesus called... Okay, I have to learn how to read a clock. (laughs) Most of the people Jesus called were working class. They weren't scholars. They weren't scribes. They weren't lawyers. Jesus would never have called me as one of his first followers. Because, frankly, he didn't want an argument. He didn't want a discussion. He wanted people to follow him. And engineers, when they're not smacking their microphones, are too quick to debate stuff. We always want to know why. I don't think any of Jesus' disciples particularly was concerned with why. He was looking for men who would learn. And while engineers are great learners, we're not any fun to teach sometimes because we question everything. He wanted followers, not disputers. His message was not difficult to understand. He didn't need the finest minds in Israel. He needed the most willing minds in Israel. It wasn't based on any great knowledge of the scriptures. Many of these men were illiterate. Now, we look down on illiteracy in modern society because, frankly, in modern society, it's difficult to function if you're illiterate. 
But in that society, which was maybe 5, maybe 10% literate, most of the people got along without reading. Now, when you're illiterate, certain things in your mind don't develop the same way that they do for a literate. I'm pretty sure all of us are literate <laughs> to varying degrees. When you're literate, when you learn to read from a young age, it affects the development of your language centers. It uh, changes literally the way your brain is structured. When you never learn to, to read, different parts of your brain develop differently than they would if you were literate. How many people in this room, by show of hands, write stuff down so that you don't have to remember it? What if you couldn't write it down? Do you think you'd forget everything? Actually, no. Illiterate people have much better memories because they don't have the crutch of writing it down. The part of their brain that goes to language development in a literate person goes to memory in an illiterate person. Their memories are better than ours because if otherwise, they'd be lost their entire life. Well, guess what? Here's Jesus with a message that he wants people to remember. Who are the best people to remember his lesson, his message? Illiterate people. It's not coincidence that the people Jesus picked to be his first disciples were almost universally illiterate. Matthew probably wasn't. Okay? And the people who, are, who don't believe the Bible pick on Matthew. He must have been the one who wrote everything down so that everybody else could remember. I'm, I'm afraid they're just ignoring human nature. Everyone else remembered because they didn't have to write it down. I write stuff down so I don't have to remember. I just have to remember where I wrote it down. And sometimes not even that's enough. <laughs> when you reach the point that we are writing down where you left the thing that you wrote down, you're on the slide. It's all over soon. But I continue. Six of the disciples were pairs of brothers. What's that give you in a group? It gives you a support mechanism. These guys had a hard life ahead of them. And brothers, unless they fight all the time like my brother and I, generally they, they, they get along, right? So Peter always had Andrew to lean on. Andrew always had Peter to lean on. James and John were apparently thick as thieves because generally when you see one in the gospel, you see the other gospels. Um, they were from different backgrounds. Four of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. One was a terrorist. Did you know that? One of the disciples of Christ was a terrorist. Simon Zelotes, the Zealots, were a group of Israelites, of Jews, who hated the Romans so much that they perpetrated acts of terror to try to get the people to rise against Rome. They would show up at public speakings with daggers, stab people at random, hide the daggers, and walk off in the crowd. One of Jesus' disciples was a terrorist. So the next time you look down on someone walking in that door, consider. <laughs> now, the, the call of six of Jesus' disciples are recorded in the Bible. Do you suppose the other six just wandered in out of the cold? Or do you suppose Jesus called at least five of them as well? 
What do you think? Thank you, brother. The crickets were getting kind of noisy. Yeah, chances are Christ called them as well, specifically. These are people Christ picked out, hand-picked for their role. Six of them had unknown backgrounds. We just know their names. But each is appealing to a different segment of the population. Four of them are fishermen. Well, that's not a surprise, given that Jesus' whole headquarters is in Capernaum, and so much of his ministry happened around the Sea of Galilee, and so many of the people working in that area were fishermen. So he's got a great end to that segment of the population. In Matthew, he's got a conduit to the despised and to the rejected, who can see in Matthew one of their own who's right there with Jesus. Other six, I don't know, but I guarantee you each is appealing to a different segment of the Jewish population. And most of these people are used to hardship and privation. They're not pampered pets. And trust me, given the life that they're looking forward to, this is an important thing. Again, a little on the pampered side. (laughs) Probably not one of those first 12. I don't believe Jesus ever would have picked me. But I'm encouraged Because after Jesus died, he picked another man. He picked Paul, who was a scholar, who was pretty high class, who had the intelligence now to write everything down, to synthesize it into a single, straightforward message. And God used that man too. So I can feel good about that, because that's a man more like me. So... What did I do? These men were called by Christ individually for what they could bring to the cause of Christ. Also, every single one of them whose call is recorded in the Bible did the same thing first. What did Andrew do right after being called, being, uh, meeting Christ and following Christ? What's the first thing the Bible records he did? Went and got his brother. What's the first thing that, oh, drat, brother of Nathaniel? Thank you. (laughs) What's the first thing Philip did? Recorded in the Bible after he found Christ. What's the first thing Matthew did? Recorded in the Bible after he was called by Christ. Dragged in all his friends to meet him. They all shared the good news without being told. You don't see in the Bible where Christ said, now that you're following me, go tell your brother. They wanted to tell their brother. They had seen something amazing. They all were Jews. They all knew the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. It was automatic. They evangelized the same way we ought to be. Except it was a lot more natural for them, apparently. Some of us, you've got to kick us pretty hard to get us moving towards evangelism. I will not discuss the bruises on my butt at this point. So, has there been a shift in your understanding as a result of our lesson today? Did we clear away a few misconceptions, maybe? It had that effect on me. I'd always seen the call of the fisherman as a cold call. I think it's much more relatable understanding the truth that these people were already aware of Christ, were already aware of his mission, were already distant followers, and they're being called to be close followers, 
disciples committed, submitted to the Word of God. So then, if you're a disciple of Jesus, what hinders you from telling others about his offer to free them from their sin? What can you do to begin overcoming this hesitation? Anyone willing to speak up on this one? It's a tough one. Pokes us where we live real quick. So you're saying you don't cold call them? There, there is certainly an example in, in the case of Christ. Something extra is on. There is an example in Christ's call of his disciples. He didn't cold call them. We shouldn't expect that we can start our conversation with a stranger about how much Christ loves them. Now, missionaries do it. Okay, but even they try to pre-salt the waters. They're handing out tracts. Then they're witnessing to people who come back from the tract. Brother Richard, why don't you come on up here? <laughs> 